Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to, where are we? Mythgard Academy, finally. Again, that's where we are. We've been off for several weeks now, but we're back and ready to start through the looking glass at last here this evening. So I am really excited to do through the looking glass. Um, I have to admit that um, not only do I, uh, you know, do I have very great affection for through the looking glass, um, I think it is just head and shoulders, um, a, a, a greater work than in Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, of course, is uh, the one people refer like it's the one they make Disney movies about, right? I know they t tend to draw from both uh, and everything, but um, uh, but really, when you when you look at the two of them together, as we're doing, um, you can see there's a whole bunch of things that he's sort of playing with uh, in Alice in Wonderland, as we've been seeing. Um, but, like, everything is so much tighter in Through the Looking Glass. Like, he sort of takes the concept of Alice in Wonderland and really um, maps it out so much more uh, concisely, so much more brilliantly. Um, so I hope, yeah, I see um, Edith was saying that this uh, this one is much less familiar. Awesome. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I, I I hope so. I hope that many of you will be sort of discovering Through the Looking Glass uh, for the first time because this book is fantastic. Man, I love this book. I used to assign, uh, to the chagrin of my uh, English 101 students, I used to I used to assign this book, um, uh, make <laughs> my college freshman write papers on it. Uh, and, um, you know, it was one of those things that, like, at first... You know, they thought that was going to be really easy <laughs> until they discovered that it wasn't. Um, but um, anyway, uh, let's uh, let us uh, let us jump into things. Well, first of all, quick announcement: um, next weekend is Mountain Moot in Denver. Really excited to be heading out to Denver. I've never been there before. I think I've been through the airport once, but apart from that, I've never really been to Denver. And uh, I'm. Uh, looking forward to going out there and meeting folks. And of course, there's uh, there's still time to, to join us. If you're local, you can register. If you're not, you can still join us uh, through our hybrid interface. You can still join us remotely. So um, please do look into that. Mountain Moot um, is going to be is going to be great fun. Um, <laughs> Oh man, right? That is the logical question. JJ is asking me how much the Carroll Estate is paying me to talk up this book. I know I'm a I'm an inveterate through the Looking Glass shill. That's um that's been one of the many things I've been shilling for for a very long time. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Arthur, we're gonna get to the difference between Jabberwock and Jabberwocky, which almost nobody ever talks about. Um, but we'll get there. Unfortunately, you will recall that the Jabberwocky poem happens at the end of the first chapter and not the beginning. Um, so we have to, uh, there's, there's much to talk about before we get there, but let's jump in. Uh, so first, there's another poem, of course, the first, the framing poem of this. Now you'll remember the framing poem of the last one, which talked about the, um, uh, the, 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 boat excursion, right, with the three girls, um, and the storytelling uh, that emerged from that. And although we had the three girls, um, within the story, we only had two, right? We had Alice, and then Alice had an older sister who was reflecting upon Alice at the very end of the, of the uh, story, as we talked about last time. Um, here, we have a different frame first. Well, let's see what we have first. Let's read it. 
Child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder, though time be fleet, and I and thou are half a life asunder, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. I have not seen thy sunny face, nor heard thy silver laughter. No thought of me shall find a place in thy young life's hereafter, even enough that now thou wilt not fail to listen to my fairy tale. A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing, a simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. Come hearken then, ere voice of dread with bitter tidings laden, shall summon to unwelcome bed a melancholy maiden. We are but older children, dear, who fret to find our bedtime near. Without the frost, the blinding snow, the storm wind's moody madness, within the firelight's ruddy glow and childhood's nest of gladness, the magic words shall hold thee fast, thou shalt not heed the raving blast. And though the shadow of a sigh may tremble through the story, for happy summer days gone by and vanished summer glory, it shall not touch with breath of bale the pleasance of our fairy tale. All right. Um, really good. Oh, man. Lewis Carroll's meter is so good. He is so good at this. Doesn't this... this I, I wanted to read it all the way through from one end to the next. Doesn't it just kind of roll over you, right? It's, uh, it's just marvelous. The, the beautiful musical regularity of it without it becoming just a sing-song, right? Um, oh man, he is so good. Okay. What's our shape here? You can hear, of course, it's stanzaic. You can hear each stanza has essentially the same, uh, the same shape. What is the what is the fundamental shape? So let's look at the start, as always, with rhythm, and then we'll look at the shape of the sound of the words, um, and then we'll look at the overall idea, flow of ideas and the structure of the poem itself. So, um, child, of, child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder, though, thou, though time be fleet and, thou, and I and thou are half a life asunder, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Um, okay. Uh, so we see a, um, uh, we have, we start off by alternating three, four beats in three, right? Which is a, which is common meter, right? Um, we're, we're in IMs generally. Some of them are perfect iambic lines, like though time be fleet and I and thou, Right, that third line, a perfect iambic tetrameter line. Right, absolutely regular. Our half a life asunder, um, almost as uh, as Stevens pointing out, they, it tends to have seven syllables in the three beat lines. Um, there's an extra one at the end. Our half a life asunder. <laughs> right, there's that extra der at the end. And dreaming eyes of wonder. Same same thing. Right. Same thing. It doesn't shift. It's not a you can tell it's it's not a trochaic sound. Right. And dreaming eyes of wonder. No. And dreaming eyes of wonder um, still has the iambic feel, not a trochaic feel. Um, But it does. They do have extra syllables at the end. Thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift, 
the love gift of the love gift of a fairy tale. Love gift is interesting, isn't it? Um, the love gift. That's a spondaic phrase. That is, you don't emphasize one word instead of it. You can't be like the love gift, right? Or the love gift. Um, love and gift really need extra stress, or it really doesn't make any sense, right? And yet, um, it really kind of works as one beat. It's two syllables, very distinctly two syllables, right? But those two things, those two syllables, really like the love gift of a fairy tale. Um, it really still is three beats, even though it has four stressed syllables in it, right? Because love gift is... Um, uh, is one single one. Um, yes, good. Uh, yeah, excellent. Stephen points out that um, it ends on the beat. Uh, one and three, and then five and six all end on the beat. Child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. Though time be fleet and I and thou are half a life asunder. Thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. Um, they end on stresses, like an iambic line is theoretically supposed to, right? So it is two and four. The B rhyme, right? Which, uh, uh, the B rhyme with also the only the three beats in a line, right? So those two lines really stand out. I believe, I think... To listen to my fairy tale. I'm, 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 I'm trying to look ahead. Because again, that first one, the love gift of a fairy tale, is a peculiar, because of that little spondy there. Spondy is what you call it when there are two stressed syllables in a row. Um, uh, and that spondy there of love gift um, makes that line rather peculiar. Looking ahead at the at line sixes, I'm trying to, I'm trying to see because again, line six of stanza one is a little bit of a bad data point. So I'm looking ahead at the rest to see the overall pattern. And in the rest of them, it does seem that the last line is a four beat line. So JJ, I think you're right in what you're seeing is that the, the, the tetrameter lines, the four beat lines, um, which are one and three, right? And one, three and five, but six as well. Um, which is not unusual to have a longer foot at the end of the line in order to, at the end of the stanza, the last line in the stanza, I mean, uh, to give the stanza that sort of sense of closure. And I think we definitely see that. Like, look at stanza three. Though envious years would say, forget, very clearly, uh, for, uh, very clearly iambic tetrameter, right? To listen to my fairy tale, also clearly tetrameter. Um, who fret to find our bedtime near. That's a perfect iambic tetrameter line. So that's very clear um, uh, that lines two and four are shorter lines. But again, as Stephen pointed out, uh, you're killing it here, Stephen, um, that uh, we're, we don't have a perfect trimeter line. It's not a six-beat, six-syllable line. There are seven-syllable lines consistently. And they're not just seven-syllable lines. They all have that same pattern. This, the pattern of ending with an unstressed syllable. Wonder, asunder, laughter, hereafter, glowing, rowing, right? It's the same we see in all three of these stanzas, and I bet you that's going to keep going. Laden, maiden, madness, gladness, story, glory. Yep. 
all the way through. Um, so we see that pattern, um, which is interesting. So it's it's using as a base pattern that alternation between a four beat line and a three beat line, which is very common. It's called common meter. Um, uh, you know, Tolkien, of course, very fond of this particular meter as well. Um, but, but he's kind of using that as a base, but he's sort of playing with it, right? Um, adding in this extra consistent, extra half foot, having seven syllable lines instead of eight syllable lines, um, uh, all the way through. Now, what's the effect of that? Child of the pure unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder, though time be fleet and thou and I are half a life asunder. Thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Um, notice the one effect that it has is to introduce breaks. You almost have to pause because it's like you're missing a beat, right? It's seven syllables instead of eight. And you feel the lack of the eight, especially because the eighth syllable that you're missing would have been a stressed one, right? So you, you, it's the fourth beat that you're missing. Um, and yet it you feel its absence in a sense, if you see what I mean. You don't enjam those. Notice how you do enjam five and six. Right? I think those those clearly flow together in ways that lines two and three and four and five just don't. Child of the pure unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. You just, you roll straight through those, right? Though time be fleet and I and thou are half a life asunder, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Um, yes, it is like a rest in music, mighty Felix, I agree. Um Yes, yes. Um, this poem makes you think of C.S. Lewis's dedication at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Mighty Felix, I um, would bet $20 that Lewis was explicitly thinking of this, uh, of Through the Looking Glass, when he wrote the, um, uh, the dedication at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Of course, like, betting that Lewis and Tolkien were thinking about Through the Looking... Lewis or Tolkien were thinking about Through the Looking Glass at almost any point is not a hard bet to win, um, because this was a book which was... Um, I mean, I put it pretty high, actually. If I had to say, like, a book which is almost always lurking in the backs of their minds, um, this might be top five, honestly it might be top five. Um, they referred to, used um, this as illustrations, um, uh, alluded to this so many times, so many times. Like this is, uh, this book, Through the Looking Glass, not Alice in Wonderland, but Through the Looking Glass specifically, just like formed a huge part of Lewis and Tolkien's imaginative vocabulary. Um, but, um, okay. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Now, notice how, when we turn to look at the sounds of the words, notice how what we've already noticed about the rhythms, how we tend to, with that sort of asterisk next to the last line of that first stanza, um, we have a deviation. We get eight full syllables, where the alternation leads us to expect seven right? On, in, in line six, right? Lines two and four have the seven syllables, the three beats. Um, but line, uh, line eight or six, anyway, the last line, uh, line six, um, has, uh, has the full eight syllables, right? Um, usually, generally the love gift of a fairy tale. It still does. 
It still does. Yeah. So the, the difference is the shift. So it's the, we got the two stressed love gift in a row and then of a two unstressed in a row. Um, so it's really just the shift. Um, it's just that, yeah, that shift in the middle, um, which makes that line so peculiar. And it, that's a thing that he just does not often do. It really stands out to me. Um, and especially how beautifully, although it's a major deviation in, I mean, it's a pretty significant deviation in, in the pattern of his meter there, but it doesn't, it doesn't kill it. Like it doesn't feel like an arrhythmic line um, because of the way love gift comes, the way that it places the emphasis on that phrase, right? And I love that. It's love gift. It's a hyphenated word, right? Um, which means it's designed to be a sort of a single concept. Um, I have to admit, I am thoroughly annoyed at whoever, like, whoever the, the like, um, you know, orthography Nazis are who are in charge of autocorrect and suggested spellings these days. I don't know who, like, what kind of, like, you know, uh, what kind of academy is in charge of doing that. But uh, have you noticed how much autocorrect and uh, suggested spellings um, hate hyphenated phrases? They just won't let you do them. Right. Um, you've got to like go way out of your way to use hyphenated words these days. Um, even words which have been traditionally hyphenated for a long, long time. Um, and now autocorrect and suggested spellings insist on printing them as just two words next to each other as if they're compl- and which, which is absolutely deaf to the nuance of language drives me bananas. There are good reasons to hyphenate words, good reasons to hyphenate phrases. Um, but, um, man drives me bananas, uh, because, and especially for this reason, um, because the hyphenation of love gift, it's, essential, right? These two words, they're not just two words next to each other in a sentence, like any other two words next to each other in a sentence, right? They come together to form. They're not a single word, right? Um, it's not an adjective and ad and, and noun or something like that. It is a, it is a two noun pairing, right? Which come together to form a new phrase, a new concept. Um, A love gift of a fairy tale. You think about it, for instance, um, the difference between fairy tale with a hyphen and fairy tale without a hyphen. It's almost like the entire thesis of Tolkien's on fairy stories right there, right? If you just have fairy tale with a space in between, sounds like a story about fairies, which is, of course, exactly what Tolkien's, one of the things he set out to say is not what a fairy tale is, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm... Uh, I'm not here to just complain about autocorrect, um, but uh, uh, but I am here to really savor and enjoy the hyphens, <laughs> hyphens from back in the day when we were still allowed to do hyphens, um, because again I think that's important and certainly that phrase "love gift" gets strongly emphasized by the rhythm of the line, right? Having that like the full two beats on that on that phrase, um, yes, yes. 
Um, oh, Jen Artanis, I am so completely sold on the Sparrow Alden thesis about hyphenated words uh, in The Hobbit and in Tolkien. For those of you who are not familiar with this, um, her thesis is that um, when Tolkien, um, people say, I remember indeed, I had a conversation with the Houghton Mifflin uh, copy editors when I was uh, I, when we were in the editing phase of my of my Hobbit book, um, when in which they were saying, you know, Tolkien is really inconsistent in how he uses hyphens, like when he hyphenates phrases and when he doesn't. Um, and I am always cautious about that because time and again I have found when people say Tolkien is being inconsistent, what they mean is we have not discerned the uh, the the principle of consistency that he is using, right? And I'm not saying he's never inconsistent in anything, but I am saying that very often um, he is being consistent in your, to, to a rule that you have not perceived. Um, and Sparrow's thesis about the hyphenated words in The Hobbit is that when there is a phrase which looks odd, um, which is hyphenated in an unconventional way, um, it is supposed to stand in... It's it's It, it is... As if it is standing in for a single word, it's it's a translation of a word in another language, right? So just as like there is a concept for this thing, a word for this thing, in, but we don't have a single word for that thing, right? Um, and so he uses a hyphenated phrase to try to capture this unified concept, which we don't have in English, um, but which uh, he is still going to try to point to um, with um, uh, with with um with the the hyphenated phrases uh and i find that i find that thoroughly convincing i'm not saying that he always was thinking uh you know it fits of course very beautifully into the later textual um uh, uh sort of conceit that tolkien used of you know that the lord of the rings was that he was just the translator right that it was written in a different language that is being translated into modern english um and no, I don't think that when he wrote it originally, he was thinking already in exactly those textual terms. Um, I, th I do think that that's a textual reading that gets imposed by Tolkien on the text after the fact. But that doesn't change the extent to which I'm convinced by that thesis. Um, it's There are still so many times when hyphenated phrases are clearly, like the hyphenated phrase, chance meeting. It was a chance meeting, right? That's clearly a thing. Right, a chance meeting in Tolkien is clearly a thing. We don't have a word for that, like that this particular kind of meeting, which seems to be uh, a random uh, meeting by chance, but is actually not a, 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 but is actually a meeting by destiny. Right, that's um, we don't have a word for that uh, specifically, but that concept is out there. Right, it's clearly a thing in Tolkien's mind, um, uh, very likely uh, a thing that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's clearly, um, a thing that exists in some language, right? Um, even if not in English. Anyway, I think that what we see going on here, um, uh, is, uh, yeah, Tarloni, I agree. I might argue that there was nothing he had fully planned out in his head from the beginning. No, that's exactly it. It's funny. You know, sometimes people... People love the idea that, like, Tolkien was, like, thinking about all this stuff way in advance, and it is so much cooler once you realize um, that Tolkien himself was, like, wide-eyed in discovery of all of these things as he was writing. For my money, that is, like, 50 times cooler, but whatever. Anyway, 
Okay. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not, this is end quasi digression because I'm still talking about love gift. Um, okay. Sound shapes. Rhyme scheme is pretty clear, pretty clear and pretty simple. Um, notice that we have the A rhymes in lines one and three, the B rhymes in lines two and four, and then a C line in lines five and six. So A, B, A, B, C, C is our general pattern here. The final couplet also um, mirrors the fact that those two lines, the shape of those two lines, the sound shape of those two lines is different too, the rhythmic shape, um, because again, they're two tetrameter lines. Um, so as Stephen was mapping before, our syllable count goes eight, seven, eight, seven, eight, eight. Right as we go through these, uh, as we go through these stanzas, and so the eight eight at the end matches with a couplet that that feels right. Right. Um, notice also that the how the the syllabic uh, peculiarity that we were pointing to in lines two and four that Stephen was also noticing that extra syllable at the end, the the seventh syllable in each line, becomes part of a two syllable rhyme in every stanza, right? So that gets, it gets emphasized. We get, um, we get a bonus syllable and bonus rhyme, whereas we get monosyllabic rhymes in lines one and three and five and six, we get bisyllabic rhymes in two and four, wonder and asunder, laughter, hereafter, glowing, rowing, um, uh, what is it? Laden and maiden, madness, gladness, story, glory. Um, so we see that consistently all the way through. Whereas again, with a consistent, with the monosyllabic rhymes everywhere else. Right. Um, okay. So what does that, um, what else do we see? Other, are there other patterns that you hear? Other, um, uh, uh, whether it be alliteration or other kind of assonances or other things that you hear in the, in the, in the lines as they go through. Um, I don't think it's, it's, it's not, um, it doesn't strike me as very sort of dense in that way, right? Sometimes we can hear a good bit of that, um, I mean, I think, for instance, uh, I think, for instance, of the, all of the time that we spent in real world time uh, here in 2022, um, we spent earlier this year talking about the I Sit Bef Beside the Fire and Think poem in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, and there's a lot of alliteration and stuff going on. We get the rhyme scheme at the end, but there's a lot of uh, rich echoes within the rest of the, uh, of the verses as well. And I'm not hearing the same thing, the same kind of, of, uh, sort of thickness, if you will, uh, of sound patterns in this poem, child of the pure unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder, though time be fleet and I and thou are half a life asunder, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Um, we get, of course, the echo of loving and love, Right, loving and love gift uh, repeated there. Thy loving smile, the love gift uh, there. Um, good, Jen, uh, excellent. Uh, the biggest word has three syllables. Yes, very simple words. Um, uh, these are all very simple words, which is fairly common with an iambic poem. Um, uh, it is uh, 
much easier to do IMs with smaller words. Um, but you're right, hereafter is the l- longest word I see um, in, uh, you know, asunder, hereafter. Um, hmm. Look, they're in the same place. That's interesting. Um, but yes, that's very, um, uh, very, very short syllables. Agreed. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll see if we get any other echoes like loving smile and the love gift. I have not seen thy sunny face nor heard thy silver laughter. The thought of me, sh- no thought of me, shall find a place in thy young life's hereafter. Enough that now thou wilt not fail to listen to my fairy tale. Um, we can hear some themes, I think, within a particular stanza. Um, like this stanza would be, you know, I would say like this stanza brought to you by the letter L, right? Um, the letter L comes in uh, at three crucial moments in the even lines, right? You notice how um, you've got the silver laughter in line two, the young life's hereafter in verse in line four, and then to listen um, to my fairy tale. Um, Wilt not fail to listen to my fairy tale. So we've got the, the terminal L's there uh, building up to listen, right? Listen is the key. Uh, key word, I think, there, uh, you know, at the end of that, that that stanza is kind of building up to, right? Um, yeah, thy silver laughter, thy young life will not fail to listen to my fairy tale. So we can see some kind of patterns like that, which are kind of, uh, which are kind of lovely. Um, uh, yeah, but, um, and some other things, I think, um, like, uh, um, Echoes and envious, right, with the ease, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. Echoes yet, envious years, the E and the Y, right? So we get, um, uh, we definitely get some sort of internal echo. Oh, look, and chime and time. We get an internal rhyme there on line three. That's unusual. I don't think we get that anywhere else. A simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing. Yeah. Anywhere else we get internal rhyme like that? The storm winds moody madness. Love the alliteration there. What a wonderful line. The storm winds moody madness. Fantastic. Um... I didn't notice any, but I didn't notice that one either, so there we go. Okay. Um, let's see. Yes! Oh, Jackrabbit, you're completely correct. Yeah, I was... Um, I was so taken with that that I missed the big, the big deal. You're right. Twice he deviates from the overall pattern there in stanza three, right? Deviating by inserting internal rhyme. And then as Jackrabbit points out, the internal rhyme sort of disguises the fact that line three doesn't rhyme with line one. It doesn't rhyme with day. There's no rhyme for days. 
A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing, a simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing. Right? If it just were, if it just built up to time, a tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing, you know, a simple song that served to time the rhythms of our rowing. It would be like, wait, wait, there's no rhyme. Why is there no rhyme? There's less rhyme than there should be, right? And so, like, Giant Rabbit, as you suggest, he keeps, the, like, there's the, there is the correct number of rhymes here, right? But that line really stands out. Oh, let me make sure. I, yeah, no, he does it everywhere else. It's the only place he deviates from that. Well, that's so interesting. We need to think about that more. A tale begun. In, so he's just had that build up to listen, as we talked about. A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing. A simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. Really interesting. Um, okay, okay. Um, though envious years would say forget. Notice that with the dashes here, the third line, the one which introduces that deviation in, in rhyme, is an interruption, right? Uh, that is, you know, if you just... A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. Like, that's that's the sort of the substance, right? The rest of it, the, what's in between the dashes is an aside, Right. Um, uh, and absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Mighty Felix definitely referencing the rowing poem at the beginning of, 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 uh, of Adventures in Wonderland. Absolutely. Um, so he's recalling the last poem, the last stories, right? The Alice in Wonderland. This is a, this is, this is a reference, relatively explicit reference to Alice in Wonderland. So, yep, definitely. But, but anyway, um, but it's an interruption. It's an aside. It's an expansion, basically, of the word tale, right? It's like an appositive of the word tale. A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing. You know that one. You know what tale I'm talking about, right? A simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing. Whose echoes live in memory yet. Oh, that is so fascinating. Um, very interesting. I, I, what interests me most about this is that whenever you've got a poet who establishes a really clear pattern and then breaks that pattern once, it's almost always important, right? That is... That does not happen. Um, it does not happen by accident. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think it did happen by accident, or if you think that, like, he just couldn't come up with a rhyme for days, then your estimation of Lewis Carroll as a poet is far, far lower than mine. Um, uh, yeah. So why? Why does he deviate there? At that aside, Devorah, as you were saying, as the the at the reference to Alice in Wonderland, 
right? Um, you know, is it the way that Alice in Wonderland, you know, that the adventures in Wonderland sort of, um, is it sort of like a, you know, like a sort of a, a nod to that as this sort of internal separate text there, um, that it gets its own little rhyme on the inside, which is not connected to the larger thing, right? It's like a, it's like a little story within us, within the story, right? Um, in that sense, right, we get this little rhyming couplet inside the single line um, as part of that aside on tale. Um, I don't know. But of course, the whole thing, that whole stanza, is about the passage of time, right? We look back upon the other days when summer suns were glowing back then, you know? Um, and then even the, the reference to the rhythm of our rowing, um, that idea of like the regular beat seems to, has this like metronome effect in the middle, right? Like we're, we're remembering back at the steady progress, right? The steady passage of times and the echoes live in memory yet though envious years would say forget we've got years have passed by the end of the stanza now we're looking back again right um and um uh the years that have passed are envious of our happy memories what a remarkable thing that is isn't it <clears throat> the idea that as time goes by and we forget we lose that immediate experience of the happy days in the past, um, the idea that the years that have intervened between us and the, those things that we remember, that those years are envious of the happiness of those days and are trying to, therefore, in their envy, trying to take them from us. This, this sort of, not just adversarial relationship between us and the years, but the, the villainy. I mean, envy of this kind, that's very... Um, it's very bad. Uh, that's an, it's an, it's an, it's indefensible to act like that, right? Um, the years are. This is a bad look for the years here. Um, yeah. They tell us. They try to influence us. They tell us to forget. Um, as if they're saying forget is going to drown out the echoes of the other days when summer suns were glowing, right? The rhythm of the rowing still echoes, right, in our memory yet. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Well, let's not... Um, I'm going to spend all night on it. I'm not sure I've fully understood that deviation. I'll keep thinking about it. Tell me if you guys come up with anything. But... Let's look at the overall shape of the poem now. What it's about, that is, and what he's talking about. Child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. So the two things that he uh, couples with the idea of the child... He's addressing a child, right? So this is not just a theoretical reminiscence of childhood, right? He's addressing a child here. And notice the two things that he emphasizes about the child are the lack of worries, right? 
pure, unclouded brow, the innocence of anxiety and concern, right? But also the dreaming eyes of wonder. So there's, there's something that's not there and there's something that's there, right? That is there. Uh, the dreaming eyes are the positive thing. The unclouded brow is the negative thing, right? There are no clouds on the brow and the eyes are just dreaming. So once again, we get the summer suns glowing, right? Remember, we're kind of echoing that down in stanza three. Though time be fleet and and I and thou are half a life asunder. Thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. Um... This poem is so beautiful. I just love this poem. Um, Though time be fleet, and I and thou are half a life asunder. Um, The acknowledgement of the gap between him, the speaker, and the child, um, the child of the pure unclouded brow. They are half a life asunder, right? Um, uh, You know, many decades between them, half of the experience of an entire life lies between them. Um, despite that, despite how fleeting time has been, fleeting, and I bes- I presume the, f- the reference to the fleetingness, uh, the speed of time, right, the fleetingness of time, um, the fleetness, perhaps, of time, refers to how time has passed for him since his own childhood, right? Um, now that he, he's talking to this child and he realizes time is, time is fleet, right? We're, we're, we're half a life asunder now. Um, he can remember what it's like to be a child, right? And yet now there's, uh, there's half a life between them. <laughs> Fourth Dauntless says, right? He just got here late. Where are we? It looks bad, Fourth Dauntless. We're on the first stanza of the opening poem, but there's, we've done a lot more than it sounds like. <laughs> It's, 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 it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Okay, okay. Um, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. So notice there's a, there's a, th- that though there, right? Although time is fleet, and although I and thou are half alive, despite these facts, he expresses confidence that uh, thy loving smile will surely hail the love gift of a fairy tale. You're, you will appreciate a fairy tale. You, because, right, not because I deserve it, but because you are loving, right? And, and there, notice the, the, the repetition that we were noticing of loving and love gift, right? The, the sort of the echo. Notice how that's symmetrical, right? The loving smile is hers. The love gift is his. So it's the mutual love between them that provides him the confidence that this half-a-life gap is going to be bridged between the two of them. Notice already how, how much more deliberate, right? How, um, how much more um, purposefully framed this story is, this poem is, compared to the last one. You know, in the last one, the last one was a fun poem, right? The opening poem of, 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 of Wonderland was fun. Um, and, you know, he was sort of, but it, it, the whole story of the poem was about spontaneity, right? About this river trip in which they began asking for stories and he started making stuff up, right? Um, and this is a very different context, right? Now we have a fairy tale that is being presented as a love gift, right? Which is being, with loving smile, 
accepted, right? It's a totally different and also more intimate, right? It's 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 one to one. This is a this is a very personal present, um, and not just a, um, again not something made up on the spur of the moment, not a kind of communal thing, right? But this is a this is a very personal thing. I have not seen thy sunny face nor heard thy silver laughter. I have not seen. Hmm. No thought of me shall find a place in thy young life's hereafter. Enough that now thou wilt not fail to listen to my fairy tale. Um, I have not seen thy sunny face, nor heard thy silver laughter. There's separation here. The first two lines talk about the separation beforehand, right? Um, they, he's not, they've not spent much time together. Right, and then the next two lines: "No thought of me shall find a place in thy young life's hereafter." Um, and there's going to be more separation after this, right? I'm not going to be a big part of your life, and I know that you're not going to be thinking about me, right? Your young life's hereafter has will have much more in it than me. Enough that now thou wilt not fail to listen to my fairy tale. The last two lines are about the now, right? And that's enough. Right now, you're listening to my fairy tale. And that's, and that's what matters. The love gift, right? A tale begun in other days when summer suns were glowing, a simple chime that served to time the rhythm of our rowing, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say, forget the stance we've just been talking about. He acknowledges the connections to the older tale, right? Um, it does suggest that the girl to whom it's written was one uh, of the girls in the boat uh, described in that first poem, right? Maybe Tertia, I don't know. Uh, I'm guessing, perhaps the youngest one. Um, so, you know, not totally unknown, and therefore presumably, you know, Wonderland, not unknown to her either, right? Um, and uh, I love the way in which those la- the la- final couplet, whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. I love the ambiguity of the pronoun, whose. Whose echoes? Echoes of what live in memory yet? Right? And it's ambiguous. It could be that the echoes of the tale live in memory yet. That is, that might be as much as to say to his listener... Right to the child audience, you remember that other story, right? Um, though envious years would say forget, you know, you 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 might have forgotten it in the but you still the echoes of it. You still mostly remember that Wonderland story, right? But at the same time, um, overlaid with that, we get a much more wistful, um. the echoes, not just of the tale begun in other days, but of the summer suns were glowing. It's the other days themselves, right? Um, For the speaker, right? For the much older speaker. It's, I think, the other days and the summer suns whose echoes live in memory yet, though envious years would say forget. Um, He's at risk of forgetting not the story, but the other days of the summer suns, right? And both are true. 
at the same time, right? Both what he's saying to her and what he's saying, um, uh, what he's saying to himself. Um, what if this is the daughter of one of the three? I maybe, maybe, um, very possibly, very possibly. The hour seems to embrace the audience as well. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't need to um, explicitly. Um, that's what suggests to me that she was involved. But it's possible that it could be a later child. And honestly, of course, it can work with almost any child who has heard that story, right? Um, Come hearken then, ere voice of dread, with bitter tidings laden, shall summon to unwelcome bed a melancholy maiden. We are but older children, dear, who fret to find our bedtime near. And this is where the poem gets real, right? Um, the first four lines are this delightfully melodramatic um, depiction of bedtime, right? Um, who is the voice of dread with bitter tidings laden, right? Uh, like your mom or your nurse coming in and saying that you've got to go to sleep now, right? So he is anticipating the interruption. They are having this this treasured time together, enough that now, right? Um, uh, and But this now, this moment in which he is telling her the fairy tale could any moment be interrupted by a dreaded voice with bitter tidings laden, right? At any moment, um, their time together could be cut off uh, because uh, the voice of doom will say, it's bedtime, right? And the reading has to stop. The storytelling has to stop and shall summon to unwelcome bed a melancholy maiden. And the melancholy maiden shall be born to the unwelcome bed. Uh, answering the inexorable summons, right? And again, on the one hand, this is a, a delightful characterization of bedtime, right? And even the the sort of uh, melodrama, right, of this uh, of of the sort of exaggerated sentiments. Well, it's easy for me to say exaggerated, right? But uh, uh, to a child, there is no exaggeration. Uh, uh, Truly, the tidings are bitter, and the voice is one of dread. Um, this is uh, this is very real, right? This is very real in the child's experience. But of course, yeah, fourth Dauntless, we're also talking about death. We are but older children, dear, who fret to find our bedtime near. Um, because at any moment, our storytellings can be interrupted by the voice of dread, which will summon us to an unwelcome bed, right? And the story time will be over. Um, absolutely. The way that he over... I mean, this is heavy stuff, right, that he overlays this with here. And again, we have the two sides, the speaker and the audience. Um, and these two things, I don't want to say they weigh equally, death and bedtime, and yet within the experiences of both, right? There's a, a, a bedtime's a big deal, right? Uh, for kids. Um, uh, we are but older children, dear, right? Is sort of the link. Um, the link to point us towards the other, like, you know, we doubtless sort of feel the joke right away, <clears throat> right? The, the sort of 
the exaggeration. Um, the exaggeration was just such a wonderful job of, of catching that the feeling of childhood, right? The, 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 the sentiment, uh, of, of childhood. Um, and yet, uh, as that, as those first four lines unfold, that second meaning, right, comes sort of clearer and clearer, right? Um, and, um, that link is then made explicitly in line five. Um, we are but older children, dear, who fret to find our bedtime near. Um, and so the way that it both sort of like elevates with a sort of seriousness the childhood concerns about bedtime, but also um, in part also diminishes the fear of death. Right at the end of the day, if we're getting old and thinking about death, uh, thinking about our own inevitable ends, um, we are but children fretting to find our bedtime near. It's not a new thing. It's not a new experience, right? But again, you have the aged experience, right? Half a life away from the youthful experience, and yet the echo and the parallel uh, between, between the two. Without the frost, the blinding snow, the storm wind's moody madness, within the firelight's ruddy glow and childhood's nest of gladness, the magic words shall hold thee fast. Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. The magic words, the magic words shall hold thee fast. Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. What is it about those that couplet that sounds different to me from the other couplets? Didn't that strike you? Didn't that hit your ear differently when I read it that last time? It did mine. But I can't figure out why. I know why. At least partly. It's not in jammed. It's not in jammed. We are but older children, dear, who fret to find our bedtime near. The enjambment of those last two lines has been consistent. Yeah, all the way through. But not there. The magic words shall hold thee fast. Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. That's why it's not enjambed. Yes, we get those two. We get a pause between those two lines. Um, made particularly strong by starting the last line with thou shalt not, right? Um, uh, that's strong. And the I am's place the emphasis where? On shalt. Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. Um, thou shalt not. Yeah. Yeah, that combination, that combination of the pause at the end of line five and the emphatic um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right adjective, but I can't. Um, uh, biblical, but that's not a good adjective, not a specific enough one. Um, Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. It's not only a command. It's not only imperative. It's really imperative, right? Really imperative because it sounds like the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not. 
Um, yeah, and I, you know, oh man, Dora, I think it's I think it has to do with that too. Um, we're set up for that by the phrase "the magic words." Yeah, the magic words shall hold thee fast. Colon, ready for the magic words? What are the magic words? Thou shalt not heed the raving blast. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we're told we're going to get magic words, and then we get this uh, phrase, this three-word phrase, which um, would have hit the ears of people raised on continuous reading of the King James Bible much more forcibly than it hits a modern person's ears. Um, but if you're raised on the King James, um, you will definitely hear the thou shalt not uh, in a particular way. Decalogic, Mahid, that's a great word for it. That's the, that's the word I was looking for. The decalogic force. Perfect. Love it. Just exactly, just exactly the word I was looking for. Um, yep, yep. Um, okay. But notice what's happening in this stanza. Without the frost, the blinding snow, the storm wind's moody madness. Within the firelight's ruddy glow and childhood's nest of gladness. Oh man, what a phrase. This stanza. Man, you've got the storm wind's moody madness on the outside and childhood's nest of gladness on the inside. Right? These two, like, incredibly powerfully contrasting ideas, which are tied together by the rhyme, right? Which are kind of coupled together um, by the rhyme scheme there. Um, yeah, the frost, the blinding snow. Yeah, the firelight's ruddy glow. Um, but the core of it, right, is that is line two and four. Um, you've got not only the wind... Not only the madness of the wind, but the moody madness of the wind, right? So you've got the harshness and the unpredictability um, and, the, you know, uh, the chaos, right, outside. And then with inside, with inside, yeah, I like that. With inside, you, you have, it's a nice little portmanteau word right there. With inside, you have a nest, right? Um, coziness. Gladness, not just comfort, right? But gladness, happiness, um, and childhood's nest of gladness. The way in which it seems to connect this entire idea of the indoor coziness with, um, with childhood itself, right? Like childhood is that little ruddy, uh, warm, ruddy, firelit, glad nest, right? In the midst of the storm winds, moody madness. Um, he's not just saying that he's not only saying that he's not just saying childhood is kind of like that. Right. Um, he's describing like the night. It's apparently a winter night that this, uh, uh, that this storytelling is happening. Right. And yet once again, having been in, having the perspectives of age and youth, right. In that last, um, you know, with like the overlay of death, right, on stanza four. Now we have once again this being characterized. Now, you know, the, the, um, what would say, what sounds like the perspective of, of, of age, right? Not only of adulthood, but of age, 
right? Being subject to having to endure the storm winds, moody madness, right? Um, being sort of, you know, making your way through the frost and blinding snow um, compared to that inner lit, warm, cozy, sheltered nest of childhood, right? But notice also, um, just as those two perspectives, the perspectives of the child and of the adult were connected from line five in stanza four, we are but older children, dear, right at the end of the day, the scale is different, right? But at the end of the day, an aging person's dread of death is not really fundamentally different. Um, it's still, it is still parallel to the, um, the fear of bedtime, right, uh, in the childhood experience. And so here, um, without, without what? Outside the house, literally, right? Outside of childhood, in a sense, um, but also outside of life, potentially, right? Um, that this whole life, this whole world that we're in, right? The entire life experience, not just childhood experience, but the entire life experience is like the inside of the room, right? While the dark and scary, cold and barren unknown uh, whirls around outside, right? The storm winds, moody madness, but we are still, we are but older children, dear, right? Um, we're still in childhood's nest of gladness. So this, you know what this, this reminds me of, um, that wonderful, that wonderful metaphor from the venerable bead. Um, uh, oh, I'm totally forget. I'm totally blanking on the work, the conversion of, uh, King, which King can't remember from the venerable bead. Um, when, but anyway, the, the, the key point, if any of you remember it, let me know. But, um, if you, if you remember that it's a very famous old English passage from the Venerable Bede. Um, but, uh, when he talks about their experience of life in the world and he compares it to, um, a mead hall, of course, it's like a mead hall where inside is warmth and light and fire and company and food and happiness. And outside is the dark, cold night and a howling storm. And he says that we as people are like a lark. I think it's a lark. It's a small bird that is flying through this, that flies in one side of the mead hall and goes through and flies out the other side, back out into the night. And this life that we live here together in this world is like that brief time that the lark is flying through the mead hall. Um, it's, this reminds me of that concept of life very much. Um, so it's possible I'm just being influenced by the venerable bead here, but, uh, uh, but I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, uh, okay. And though the shadow of a sigh may tremble through this story for happy summer days gone by and vanished summer glory, it shall not touch with breath of bale the pleasance of our fairy tale. Oh man, JJ, you came up with the quotation. What's the what's the name of it? Yeah, the sparrow. It was a sparrow. Okay, who flew in from one side to the other? Um, awesome! Wow, JJ came up with a full quotation there. 
The present life of man upon earth, O king, seems to me in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, like the swift flight of a sparrow through the mead hall where you sit at supper in winter. Oh, I know it's from the ecclesiastical history. I was trying to remember which story, like the conversion of which king. It's the conversion of king somebody or other. I have vivid memories of uh, translating that story from Old English in my very first Old English class when I was in college. Um, I don't know why I particularly, there are a few stories I particularly remember from my very first intro to Old English class. But um, anyway, yeah, it's, uh, I, I forget which king. I think it begins with an E, but Edwin. Thank you. The King, king Edwin of Northumbria, the conversion of King Edwin. Thank you, Edith. That was bothering me. Conversion of King Edwin. I was right, wasn't he? Okay, anyway, last stanza. And though the shadow of a sigh may tremble through this story, um, he acknowledged, I mean, having these last two stanzas have been fairly grim, right? Um, talking about death, thinking about the what lies without, right? Um, the shadow of a sigh may tremble through this story. Oh, love that verb um, that couplet might be the most beautiful couplet in this whole poem I think and though the shadow of a sigh may tremble through the story for happy summer days gone by and vanished summer glory you may detect some wistfulness about happy summer days gone by notice the quotation marks there happy summer days gone by it's not like j- it's the concept of happy summer days gone by, right? It's not even that he's sighing for literal happy summer days. It's like the idea of happy summer days. The fact that I that happy summer that the the, the happy summer days concept is in the past, right? Um, may lead to the shadow of a sigh trembling through the story and vanished summer glory. So this is a poem. This, this is a story he's suggesting. Um, this story he is suggesting is one which might possibly be touched with not nostalgia, but regret. Regret. Um, regret for vanished summer glory, for happy summer days gone by. Um, the shadow of that sigh. But I think also in the context of the last two stanzas, when we come into this last stanza with that line, and though the shadow of a sigh um, may tremble through the story, I think it's not just happy summer days and vanished summer glory that we're going to... that. I think he's prompting us to imagine there might be the shadow of a sigh for, but also for the future, right? That bedtime, which is drawing near to us, uh, the storm winds, moody madness, uh, going all around our own personal meat halls there. Um, but though the shadow of a sigh, so although the awareness of death, of death to come, right? Of the envy of the years that has gone by, right? Um, the awareness of these things 
may lead not a whole sigh, but just the shadow of a sigh to tremble through the story. It shall not touch the sigh. It shall not touch with breath of bale the pleasance of our fairy tale. Um, notice the parallel. You've got the, the breath of bale, the deadly breath, right, of that sigh. Like the storm winds, moody madness all around the house, right? But inside, firelight's ruddy glow and childhood's nest of gladness. Inside is the pleasance of our fairy tale, right? So all of these things are remembered. They're an important context. Um, but the context that they provide is the same context that the frost and blinding snow provides to the childhood's nest of gladness, right? Um, that is, you're warmer and more snug when you are aware of the freezing cold and howling wind around outside, but you're all curled up in a happy and snug nest, right? Um, their fairy tale, the pleasance of our fairy tale. And it's our fairy tale now, right? Notice, remember, at the beginning of the poem, um, it was his fairy tale, the love gift of a fairy tale, to listen to my fairy tale. It was his fairy tale that he was giving to the child, right? He was presenting to the child in those first two stanzas. And now it's our fairy tale. Just as, again, I'm suggesting that childhood's nest of gladness is not only her experience contrasted with his. It is that, too, right? Um, but it's not just that. Now that childhood's nest of gladness is itself the place, right, is the pleasance of our fairy tale. Um, what we have, <clears throat> what we have here is escape. You can see why Tolkien thought of Through the Looking Glass so many times when writing on fairy stories. Um, go through and count the number of Through the Looking Glass references and on fairy tales. It's high. Um, and um, I think that one of the things that we can see, especially as we get here to the end of this poem, I think that we can see an almost pure statement of what Tolkien calls escape in On Fairy Tales. Um, so pure as I think it helped to suggest it to Tolkien. Um, it shall not touch with breath of bale the pleasance of our fairy tale. That could be like an epigram of half of Tolkien's writings, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, really great stuff here. Okay. Um, but now that we're almost done, let's move on from the intro poem. But I don't regret it for a minute. Um, I was... Uh, I was sitting down and just kind of reading through this poem before, and I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to say about this poem, but I know we have a lot to talk about, so let's just sit down with this poem. Um, yeah, yeah. Jack Rabbit, you're right. One of his references is that he excludes Ellis stories from being fairy tales proper because of the dream framework. Yep, he does. Uh, he does. Uh, uh, it's true. It's true. They're not proper fairy tales. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> just inspire on fairy stories, that's all. Okay, let's begin looking at Alice's beginning. Now, we get here a frame 
quite unlike anything we saw in Alice in Wonderland, right? Um, that is, we got a frame story um, of her being like outside at like a, you know, sort of picnic or whatever, and then sort of falling asleep. And then she sees the rabbit and she follows the rabbit and falls down the hole, right? It's very, very brief. And we get almost nothing happening in advance. Here we get this long chapter um, before all leading up to her going through uh, the looking glass and into looking glass house. Um, But uh, what do we see here? So my main question is why, what is the function of this opening chapter? Why do we get this long quasi dialogue, right? It's a monologue, but in Alice's mind, it's a dialogue between herself and her kitten. Right. Um, And, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, awesome. I'm glad you guys enjoyed the discussion of the poem. That poem is so good. Anyway, um, okay. Why do we get the dialogue, quasi-dialogue, with the kitten, right? Um, I love Alice's conversation with the kitten. Um, one thing that we can clearly see is we are being introduced to some of the primary... There are several things that... Carol is setting up here in this first chapter that are going to be very important as framing conceptions for this story. So, for instance, notice what we see here. I'm kind of I'm not doing it from the beginning. We're going to allude back to several things in the earlier parts of the chapter that I've skipped here. But, um, um, but so look at what we see here. That's three faults, Kitty, and you've not been punished for any of them yet. You know I'm saving up all your punishments for Wednesday week. Suppose they'd saved up all my punishments, she went on, talking more to herself than the kitten. What would they do at the end of a year? I should be sent to prison, I suppose, when the day came. Or, let me see, suppose each punishment was to be going without a dinner. Then, when the miserable day came, I should have to go without fifty dinners at once. Well, I shouldn't mind that much. I'd far rather go without them than eat them. Right. Uh, uh, of course, she comes to the conclusion, the ironic conclusion, um, that although being... Um, sentenced to go without dinner uh, is itself uh, a, a relatively stern punishment. Um, to multiply that by 50 and to go without 50 dinners all at once um, is indeed less of a punishment than being forced to eat 50 dinners all at once, right, um, uh, is the ironic c- conclusion to which she comes. Um but yes, Jackrabbit, you are correct. This means that Alice is anticipating being punished almost once a week. This does give us a little bit of a glimpse, doesn't it, uh, into um, uh, Alice's own checkered career with her caregivers, right? Her uh, her rather imperfect disciplinary record, right? Um, and thus, this then imposes a kind of irony on her scolding the kitten for the kitten's three faults, right? Um, Now, uh, one very simple thing that we can see going on here um, is that uh, Alice is both very interested in and also actively emulating a parental relationship. Right, her scolding of the kitten, she is speaking like the kitten's mom 
all the way through. First, she speaks to the kitten's mom. Dinah, her cat, whom we will remember from Alice in Wonderland, has had kittens, right, uh, prior to this book. And um, she is... We st- we meet Dinah, briefly, right? Uh, Dinah is present, though Dinah is busy grooming one of her other kittens at the time. Uh, and she partially is uh, standing in for Dinah with the kitten, right? So we have the parent cat and the kitten. And then we have Alice taking on the parental role with the kitten. And this is one of the moments when we can see the explicit echo between her discipline of the kitten and her parents' discipline of her, right? Um, So that's one interesting element that we are given through this whole kitten incident at the beginning. Um, That Alice, not just that we're being reminded of the parent-child relationship, but that we see Alice actively in her imagination... <clears throat> well, I was going to say reversing it, but that's not quite... Reversing it in the sense that she's putting herself, instead of being the child, as being the parent. Um, uh, that's not so much a reversal. It's not a full reversal in the sense that she then takes the parent figure um, and makes them into children. Yet. Right? That is yet to come. The kitten is still a child figure. Right? So first she speaks to the kitten like the surrogate parent. Of the, ch- of, of, of the kitten, right? She's speaking, as they say, on Dinah's behalf, right? Um, but, uh, um, but then we will see a more full reversal as this moves later on. Let's not forget, of course, that she was already putting the kitten next to the chess pieces. There's the... the it was the queen, wasn't it? The red queen who is standing there with her arms folded and she was trying to get... Is it the queen or the king... I'm forgetting now. Somebody remind me. Whom she was trying to get the kitten to pose like. She was trying to cross the, the kitten's paws uh, so that it would be standing there like the 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 chess piece was standing. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it was the queen. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Devor. I appreciate that. So, um, so yeah, so there's... Um, She's standing in for Dinah as parent figure to the kitten. And then she's connecting the kitten to the chess pieces, to the Red Queen. Okay. Um, So this is important. Little glimpse into Alice. I love this paragraph. Do you hear the snow against the window panes, Kitty? How nice and soft it sounds. Just as if someone was kissing the window all over outside. I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields, that it kisses them so gently. And then it covers them up snug, you know, with a white quilt. And perhaps it says, Go to sleep, darlings, till the summer comes again. And when they wake up in the summer, Kitty, they dress themselves all in green and dance about, whenever the wind blows. Oh, that's very pretty, cried Alice, dropping the ball of worsted to clap her hands. And I do so wish it was true. I'm sure the woods look sleepy in autumn, when the leaves are getting brown. Okay. Um... Notice um, again what I what I want to do with these initial passages is just help us to notice sort of how Alice thinks and how this story works. Right in Alice's imagination, 
she's watching and listening to the snow against the window panes. And what she immediately does is anthropomorphize the snow, right? I wonder if the snow loves the trees and fields, that it kisses them so gently, right? First, we have the association between the sound of the snow hitting the window panes, which is a lovely sound. I love that sound, too. Um, Just as if someone was kissing the window all over outside. Um, That that's her association is delightful and tells us something about Alice and her experience. Um, yes, fourth Dallas, I do believe that worsted is some grade of yarn. Um, I don't know enough about yarn uh, to uh, know exactly what worsted is, but that is my understanding. Anyway, okay. Um, so the, her first association between the sound of the snowflakes hitting the window and kissing um, is uh, 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 sort of loving and beautiful, right? And she immediately goes from there to imagining that, to personifying the snow, right? The snow must love the trees and fields and is kissing them gently. And so now we have, once again, she's thinking in this kind of parental frame, right? Just as her interactions with the kitten immediately take on that, like the kitten is the child and she is the parent uh, kind of dynamic in her imagination. Now the snow is kissing the landscape and tucking it in to sleep, right? Uh, Like a parent does. Um, I don't know if um, uh, the landscape, um, uh, you know, does does not like to find its bedtime near, but uh, apparently. Um, Okay, excellent. All right. Uh, Mighty Felix says, uh, uh, Worsted is medium weight yarn, good for blankets, scarves, and warm things. Excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) No, Arthur, it has nothing to do. Uh, (laughs) That's well remembered, though, Arthur. Arthur's recalling, of course, the line from The Fellowship of the Ring when Mary wakes up from his dream in the the barrow and uh, says, the men of Karn Doom came upon us at night and we were worsted. Not not that kind of worsted. Um, (laughs) But... um, uh, and anyway, and then they wake up in the summertime. So notice how the metaphorical landscape of the opening poem, right, of the, the, the winter outside and the warm inside, and then those glorious summer days, right, uh, and summer sun is being echoed here. Like Alice herself is kind of picking that up, and she's associating the summer with uh, life and dancing and uh, and everything, the wind does blow. But when the wind blows in the summertime, it just makes it just makes things dance around, right? Uh, to dance in happiness because they're all so happy to be up, uh, to be to to be woken up from their their long night sleep, their long winter's sleep. Um, she has taken the um, uh, the uh, what is it? Storm winds, moody madness, wasn't that? Yes, storm winds, moody madness, uh, and uh, turned it into this loving and benevolent tucking in, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that really strikes me about this is, I do so wish it was true. I do so wish it was. 
Um, it's not true. She knows it's not true. She has an awareness of her own imagination here, right? Um, she's not merely, you know, sort of deluded. She's not just, uh, you know, sort of participating in these fancies. Um, she is aware of the sort of gap between this little picture she's just imagined and reality, right? Um, but it doesn't stop her from wishing that, that it was actually so. And I think, I think that's important. Um, all right, Dora Stroke says, do we clap our hands in joy anymore? I have two little girls. I don't think they do. Is that a Victorian thing? They do that all the time. Yeah, they do that all the time in 19th century novels. Clapping your hands in joy. I don't know when we stopped doing that. But I think you're right. I don't think we do that anymore. Applause, clapping for us really is... Um... Yeah. Oh, good. Some people are testifying. Okay. Right. Jen Artana says it's kind of embarrassing, but I do it all the time. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so we have some testimony of uh, of uh, 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 some people who still clap their hands in joy. I mean, most of the time, I think we have, by and large, tended to um, uh, tended to reserve applause for like appreciation of people. Right, like I'm applauding for you and for something that you've done. Um, uh, but yeah, as a spontaneous gesture of joy, it's certainly in all the old books. Um, but glad to hear that some people still do it. Anyway, okay, um, but let's keep going, and then we're going to be done soon. We're not going to get to Jabberwocky today. I'm not even going to try to talk about Jabberwocky today. Okay. Kitty, can you play chess? Says Alice, introducing one of the core metaphorical concepts of the book. Now, don't smile, my dear. I'm asking it seriously. Because when we were playing just now, you watched just as if you understood it. And when I said check, you purred. Well, it was a nice check, Kitty. And really, I might have won if it hadn't been for that nasty knight that came wriggling down among my pieces. Kitty, dear, let's pretend... And here I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say, beginning with her favorite phrase, let's pretend. She had had quite a long argument with her sister only the day before, all because Alice had begun with, let's pretend we're kings and queens, and her sister, who liked being very exact, had argued that they couldn't because there were only two of them, and Alice had been reduced at last to say, well, you can be one of them then, and I'll be all the rest. And once she had really frightened her old nurse by shouting suddenly in her ear, Nurse, do let's pretend that I'm a hungry hyena and you're a bone. Okay, first of all, um, once again, about Alice's imagination. But before we even talk about Alice's imagination, the narrator's voice here. This, I think, is quite different than what we routinely got from the narrator um, in uh, uh, in Alice's in Alice in Wonderland, right? Um, the narrator pausing to comment to us 
uh, tell us about Alice, right? That sentence, and here I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say, uh, beginning with her favorite phrase, let's pretend. And by the way, um, notice how similar the tone of that sentence is to the tone of the Hobbit narrator. Again, um, I'm not saying it's the only exemplar. Um, There were plenty of children's books that used this same kind of uh, narrative tone. But Lewis Carroll is certainly prominent among them, especially in Through the Looking Glass, more so than in Alice in Wonderland. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, that, that early phrase, and here I wish I could tell you half the things Alice used to say. Um, there's a line from The Hobbit that is kind of floating on the edge of my memory, and I'm not able to dredge it up, which is very parallel to that. Um, I wish I could tell you half the things... Is it about things that they ate? I'm forgetting it exactly. Half of the things that are one or two of the songs. Tolkien almost quotes that line in The Hobbit. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah. But anyway, what the narrator is pausing to address us directly um, uh about is Alice's imagination, right? Um, So first, what about her imagination? First, it is very active and rich. Um, Her um, her her sister may be restricted to only imagining herself to be one other person. Thank you. Ah, I knew you'd come up with it, JJ. I wish I had the time to tell you even a few of the tales or one or two of the songs they heard in that house. Yes, good. That's in that's in chapter three, right? Uh, of The Hobbit about Rivendell? Yep. There you go. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, that's the line that I'm, again, I'm sure that that sentence lies behind it. Uh, in Tolkien's experience. But anyway, um, it's not only that she likes to imagine things. Her sister likes to imagine things too, but her sister is restricted, right? By, she can only, she her memory only goes like one to one, right? She can imagine herself to be a king or queen, um, but she can only imagine herself to be one other person, right? Alice has no such restrictions. Alice's imagination is geometrically different than her sister's, right? Um, And if she and her sister cannot together imagine themselves to be multiple kings and queens, Alice will be all of the rest of the kings and queens, and her sister will be whichever one um, she she wants to be. Um, But um, then similarly with her nurse... um, she is <laughs> let's pretend I'm a hungry hyena and you're a bone um, the way that she is breaking from sort of conventional understandings her sister is very conventional right um, her nurse is understandably alarmed right um, by her wanting to break out of uh, 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 sort of <laughs> the human family there right um yeah, yeah, but um, uh, yes, 
Yes. So her imagination is of a different kind. Again, it's on a it's on a different sort of mathematical plane, right, than other people's imaginations. But look at how it then links back, right? Through that phrase, let's pretend, which the narrator is pausing to expound upon, right? Uh, Kitty dear, let's pretend. Um, and notice the transition here. She's talking about chess. And then she's talking about that nasty knight that came wriggling down among my pieces. Um, and yes, it's true. Knights don't move in straight lines, right? So, um, But they're still like she was imagining the snow outside to be kissing the window, right? Now she's imagining the knight whose move came in and spoiled her um, uh, her her very uh, uh, her very nice check, right? Um, is wriggling, right, like a snake, right? She's betrayed by this knight, right? This nasty knight that came wriggling among my pieces, and this immediately leads her to want to pretend something more. Let's pretend. Kitty, dear, let's pretend. And before we even hear what she's going to pretend, that's when he interrupts to tell us. Now, when she says, let's pretend, let's understand the kind of thing that she's going to pretend. And what he sets us up here for here is some of the ways in which chess and the chess game are going to serve as the imaginative schema, right, which underlies the entire rest of the story that we're going to be hearing. And we can often forget about it, um, if we don't pay attention. Um, but that kind of like, ima- like let's pretend on an entirely different level is what we're going to be getting in the story. So we've got the parent-child thing um, with the cats explicitly as uh, both the sort of the vehicle and the, the sort of substitute um, for the parent-child dynamic there. And now we've got the chess piece thing as well. Um, and soon we're going to we're going to combine. We're going to combine the two thing, the two things. All right, I'm going to stop there though. It's getting late, and I could keep going for a while. I love this book so much, um, but um, uh, but we should we should stop. Um, look at her setup to Looking Glass Land again. The thing that is so different about her entrance into Looking Glass House and her entrance into Wonderland is that Wonderland just happens. She doesn't understand it. There's no, it's a, it's a, it's a, a strange thing which she herself can't grasp what is happening and how the world is changing around her or perhaps how she herself has changed into somebody else. Remember all that. Um, this is framed explicitly in Alice's mind, right? This is ex- in part a plain extension of her prediction. She's just said, she's just suggested to the kitten that she's going to start a pretending about chess, right? Okay, so we've got that. Um, Now she's going to start a pretending about the looking glass. So we'll look at that next time. Her imaginations, her actual passing into looking glass land and her continuous commentary on the relationship between her house and looking glass house uh, and see what that shows us. And we'll, of course, build up to Jabberwocky and then go on uh, into uh, through into Looking Glass House and the garden outside. Once again, her trying to get into a garden like she did, uh, like she was trying to do in Wonderland. But anyway, um, so go ahead and read chapter two. 
uh, for next time as well. So we'll 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 talk about one and two. We'll talk about the rest of chapter one and chapter two. Still a lot to talk about in chapter one, including the Jabberwocky poem. So I'm not 100% sure we're gonna get past chapter one next time, but um, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Uh, in any case, thanks everybody for joining me. So glad I could join you again. I'm sorry that uh, things have been more intermittent. It's been a super busy season. Um, I um, uh, of course uh, for people who are watching the recording after the fact this is happening right in the middle of season one of the rings of power and i'm doing like a ton of extra broadcasts and recordings uh related to that um so i have been kind of uh going a little bit lighter on my other broadcasts because we'll still be here doing Mythgard academy uh, after the season is over um and i'm trying to uh not um perish <laughs> during this seven week uh period um but anyway so i we hope to be back um probably not next week but the week after is uh what my plan is going to be i think for that so anyway thanks everybody and i will see you guys around good night now